One of the things I've learned at Crossroads is if you're going to speak here, you have to learn to pace a lot. So I've been working, working on my pacing, but it's a whole different deal with the square up here. So um, anyway, we've been in Revelation, and uh, this morning we're going to go to the opposite end. All right, we're not going to be in Revelation this morning. We're going to Genesis chapter 15. So uh, opposite end of the, of the book, and I would love to invite you to stand with me during the reading of God's Word, Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. But he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you, through your spirit, would awaken your word this morning. Would you awaken it in our hearts? Would we hear that you truly are our shield and our great reward? Would you soften our hearts and help us to turn away from the the false gods that we so often pursue and turn toward the one true living God this morning? Allow your word to be alive in our hearts and through this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it was June 28th, 2008. It was a really big day for me. It was also a really hot day and a very windy day. I was standing in my suit, ready for my wife to come down the aisle. And I was extremely excited anticipating all of what this might mean. I was ready to make a covenant with her and say to her, I am going to protect you. I promise to care for you. I want to give my life for you. I want to walk with you in life. And 
I was uh, standing under the hoopah, not quite fully under it yet, and was praying that it wouldn't blow over because it was so windy. And my wife came in a horse-drawn carriage. It was a white horse-drawn carriage. It was like a fairy tale. And her dad was sitting next to her, and he got off first, and he helped her off. And as she was coming down the aisle, I was filled with so much joy and thinking of all the amazing things that we're going to experience in this life. She came down the aisle, we turned, and I, I held onto her veil so it wouldn't blow off her head because it was so windy. And uh, everything else went without a hitch. It was a beautiful day. And I thought, this is going to be incredible. We ended up moving into a really large house. It was 500 square feet. Uh, <laughs> and um, even if we got into a fight, we had nowhere to go. There's only one room. And... Um, and and we lived on this lake, which was really cool, because we loved to fish and ski. And that first summer, we had so much fun together. We would go out, we would have people over, we'd play games together, we'd laugh together. And I remember thinking this whole idea of covenant is simple. You know, this is easy. What are people talking about how hard this is, the first year of marriage? We had kind of a tough dating period, but I think we worked through a lot of things. So that first couple of months was just bliss. I ended up sinking my parents' boat in that lake that summer, um, which was not a highlight. Uh, fortunately, my brother helped me to bail out the water, and uh, it still ran, but it never quite ran the same after that. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Um, fortunately, they were very gracious about that. And uh, I've only sunk one boat, just so you know. It's, it's only happened to me once. And so, um, all kinds of memories. It was an awesome summer. Such good things happened. And I remember, yeah, just being overwhelmed with how exciting this new relationship was, how fun it was to to do life together. And then in November, we got a call from her her family that uh, her dad was diagnosed with cancer and that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a a promising diagnosis, but I remember holding my wife as, as she would cry on and off for two days. And I remember thinking all of a sudden, like, this whole idea of, of covenant, like, I don't know that I was prepared for, to, to even know how to grieve with her. Nobody taught me how to grieve. Like, I, I grieve one way, she grieves a different way. And so I remember it starting to put some tension on us. She wanted to spend a lot of time with her family, and I, I understand that, but we, we weren't sure how to navigate some of the different things. And... Her family started to feel some of the weight of it. And we had covenanted together. We had said in sickness, in health, it doesn't matter what, we're in this. Because of our covenant relationship with God, we're walking in this together. Little did we know that there are so many ways that I was looking to comfort, my own ways of comfort, that I didn't even know I was looking to. And she was trying to control the diagnosis, trying to control the outcome. And little by little, it was causing a divide in our relationship. We didn't even know how much till years later as we're walking through and realizing how much has transpired from that point. And you know, that day, that wedding day, I was so full of excitement, so full of love. I had no idea how high the highs were going to be, and I had no idea how low some of the lows are going to be. And I probably, I'm eight and a half years in, I probably have no idea how high some highs are going to be and how low some other lows are going to be. And I think that Abram is feeling a very similar thing. He's, he's been super excited about this covenant that he's made with 
with God that God's making with him, and he's told him, I'm going to bless you. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love this. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to give you land. It's going to be incredible. And yet, it's 11 years after he made that initial promise, and Abram is beginning to ask some questions. God, I believe you. I know you're going to do this, but like, show me how you're going to do this. I have uh, my wife. She, she, we can't have children. It's impossible for Abram and, and Sarah to have children. And he's like, how is this going to happen? This is 11 years later. If I don't have children, uh, re- remember back then, if they didn't have children, children was their, 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 their protection. They didn't have a retirement plan. So their, their children took care of them. That was their retirement plan. And if they didn't have children, they were left very vulnerable. They also, he left his father's house. He left his bait off, his father's house, and said, I'm going to follow you, God, wherever you're going to lead me. I'm going to trust you that you're going to provide for me. And, and God takes him outside, says, look, I'm going to, the, the stars in the sky, that's what it's going to be like, the amount of people that are going to come and follow after you. And he says, I believe you, but then he later says, can you help me with this whole idea of uh, land? How will I know that you're going to provide this land for, for me? And I I don't know about you, but I, I have a hard time waiting. I'm not the greatest at waiting. As a matter of fact, as, a, as an infant, my mom tells me that I would sit on her lap for about 30 seconds, and then I'd be off moving again. And she was like, I just love to cuddle, but you didn't like to cuddle. You just wanted to be on the go. And uh, I'm a counselor as well, and so throughout the day, I'll see sometimes eight or nine clients, and I can't sit for very long. So sometimes I just stand and walk, and I'm like, is that okay, you know? And people are like, that's weird. Counselors are supposed to sit, but if you want to walk, you know, that's fine. And so I'm the walking counselor. Um, and, uh, and I just have never been that great at waiting. I had a high school teacher that looked at me and said, Aaron, patience is a virtue, and you definitely don't possess it. It's like, thank you, professor. When I was 15... I was promised I was going to get my license when I turned 16 because I got my permit early, had spent a lot of time driving. I had longed to drive and have freedom all my life. I love freedom. I love to go do my own thing. And I got my permit right when I turned 15, paid for it myself, was eager to drive. And about six months into having my permit, I was tired of waiting, you know, like six months. That's a long time for me. And my brother's car was sitting in the driveway, my parents were away, and my brothers were away, and his keys were sitting out. It was a perfect situation, I thought. And so I grabbed the keys, it was a stick shift, and I knew how to drive it a little. And so I jumped in it, and I took it for a drive, and I, and I thought, I wonder what happens if you pop the clutch? Like, how far could I burn out? So I come to a stop sign, and I pop the clutch, and sure enough, it burns out for a long time. My brother was really grateful for that, I'm sure. Um, so I burn out, and, and then I was going around corners, and I was like, I wonder how fast I could go around these curves and the car still stay on the road. Like, what? what could, I wanted to test what this thing could do, you know? So I'm going around corners, and fortunately I was able to stay on the road, even though there was some more uh, squealing of tires. And um, all of a sudden, I, I started to have this, this guilt well up inside of me that was also kind of covered by some adrenaline because it was pretty, pretty crazy to be driving. I could get a ticket. I could be thrown in jail. I could be dead if my parents or my brother found out. And then it dawned on me, I have no idea when they're getting home. I have no, I have no clue when they're coming in the driveway. I didn't think about that beforehand. I was so excited about driving. 
So I instantly began to pray and say, God, would you spare my life? Because if I get home and my brother gets home before me, my life as I know it is over. It's done. And, uh, and I said, if, you know, if my parents are home, I'm not going to have my license until I'm 25. So I, I drive in and I like kind of sheepishly drive in real slow. Like, you know, I was taking care of his vehicle just in case he saw it. And I opened the door and I said, hello. And I am not kidding you. 30 seconds after I opened that door, my brother pulled in the driveway. And I was like, there is a God in heaven. Hallelujah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And to this day, my brother does not know that I took his car. So let that be a secret between you and me. (laughs) I think he'd still be mad. So Abram is feeling this. He doesn't like to wait. I I can relate with him. Americans are probably the people who can relate with him most. We're not very good at waiting. And we often want to take things into our own hands. We want to do it our own way. And so... Um, we see that he begins to take things into his own hands. And in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai decide, hey, I got an idea. Maybe God needs some help with his promise. You know, like maybe he doesn't really know what he's doing. We could help him. So why don't you go into Hagar and, and have a baby that way, and then we can help God with his promise. They're like, yeah, that's a great idea. I think God needs some help. That's, that's good strategy. So they did that. And Abram ended up having a a son through Hagar named Ishmael. What's really interesting about that is um, he's essentially disobeying, and Ishmael was born outside of this covenant with Sarah, and the ramifications of him taking matters into his own hands was significant. It is believed that Ishmael was born, um, that Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, and many Muslims believe it was Ishmael who was going to be sacrificed by Abram on the altar instead of Isaac. There have been years of hatred and holy wars between Muslims and Christians. Could it be that Abram's choice of disobedience in that moment in disregard of God's promise caused all this disunity? You see, our sinfulness and our desire to step out of our covenant relationship with God to solve our problems results in all kinds of disobedience. I'm prepared for my twin boys taking my car and wrecking it or something like that when they're 14 because I know it lives in them. This, this whole idea of rebellion, this whole idea of uh, not being able to wait, I see it in them. And, and as humanity, we have a hard time waiting on God's promise. But God in his grace shows Abram very specifically how he's going to fulfill his promise. God knew that Abram was going to struggle. And, that, and with this, he still restores Abram's family in, in his covenant love. You know, and Abram asked the question, how will I know that you're going to give me this land? And it's actually the Hebrew word yada. It's the experiential knowing. He's like, how will I experientially know that you will do this? And I love what God does here. What God does is he comes to Abram and shows him a covenant relationship, which is very common in his day. This, it's how covenants were made. How people who were not blood relatives would actually spill blood to say, we're going to make sure we're promising and the oath is, it stays strong. Trust is the foundation of relationship and they're saying, we've, we've got to secure trust here. So a covenant was a relationship and it was a way that they're becoming family with one another. They're staking their very life on this. So Abram knows exactly what to do. He goes and grabs five animals. 
and uh, cuts them in half. They're three years of age, and three is the number of resurrection and restoration. The interesting thing is the lesser party would, would take the animals and cut them in half and put the halves on either side of a hill coming down into a valley. And the blood of the animals, I know this is kind of gruesome, would run into the valley, and then they would walk through the pieces, blood on their feet, saying, may this be done to me if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. Kind of a big deal. I think, like, we would probably think twice about signing documents if we had to, like, sign it with the blood and realize that if we didn't uphold our end of the, of the bargain, of the oath, of promise, this is what was going to happen not only to us but also to our families. And so they would both walk through this. This is huge, very symbolic. And they're saying, we need to be able to trust each other. And the, the word has said, love, is what was talked about when the, when the lesser party was faithful to the, to the older or uh, greater party. What's also interesting is the treaty was concluded with a huge meal, a celebration fellowship meal where they would roast the animals and they would celebrate this new family that's coming together. People who were not blood are becoming blood. So this idea of covenant has said loyalty and love was what all covenants were based on. And people who were faithful had a, had a renown for being faithful and other people would make covenants with them. People who were unfaithful, well, they didn't stick around for very long. They were kind of killed. And so they're becoming family together in this and, and God is showing Abram how he's going to walk with him in this. This form of covenant, covenant uh, ceremony is still practiced today in uh, within the Bedouins, especially as it relates to prearranged marriage. During the actual ceremony, the two fathers of the bride and the groom come forward and they talk about the terms of the covenant. The greater party, the groom's father, always provides the terms of the covenant. So he would read the terms aloud and pay the bride price. The lesser party provided the animal, a goat or a lamb. Then the father of the bride would take a lamb or a goat, slit its throat, collect the blood in the place in the ground. He would then take off his sandals and put his feet in the blood. Next, the father of the groom would take off his sandals. What they were saying is, if I don't keep up my end of the covenant here, may my blood be spilt. May my family's blood be spilt. Each party was staking their very life on keeping their side of the covenant. So Abram knows exactly what he's doing. He's the lesser party. He supplies the animals, and God, the greater party, provides the terms. What are God's terms? Abram I promise I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. You're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have all kinds of land. Through your little family, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. Now God gives the terms. Abram, you are to be blameless. You are to be perfect. Let's cut this thing. If I fail on my end, you can cut me to pieces. If you fail on your end... You're going to be cut to pieces. Look in verse 12. What happens to Abram? It says, A thick and dreadful darkness came over Abram. This is a Hebrew expression which simply means he was scared to death. He was full of dread. He was full of depression. He realized if he touched his toes in that blood, he was as good as dead. To walk with God? Possible. To walk blamelessly before God, impossible. 
There is no way that he can put his feet in there and still walk away. He, he knows there's no way that he or and his descendants can uphold this. So he's full of terror. He's full of, it's kind of like Isaiah, where he's falling on his face and just overwhelmed with God's power and goodness and realizing that he's nothing. He's desperate. You see, in our darkness, in the darkness of our sin and shame, when we encounter the darkness of our our sin and shame, uh, it, it draws us to our desperate need for Jesus, how we need Jesus. We cannot do any of this without him. We can either walk in this covenant relationship or we can begin to try to do it in our own way and say, you know what, I'm going to seek my own comfort. I'm going to seek my own control, my own ways of doing this. We can either soften our hearts and become undone and say, God, I need you to show up. Or we can harden our hearts and say, God, I'm, I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going, to do, I'm going to try to figure it out my own way. And you know, comfort that we seek never satisfies. The control that we go after never really gives us what we long for. The thing I love here is God restores Abram and his family and his promised love through faith, through the foundation of relationship. The question I have for you this morning is, will you trust Jesus as your shield and your great reward, or are you choosing to look elsewhere this morning? I love what happens next. In verse 17, we see that God comes into Abram's darkness. Instead of being like, ooh, stinks to be you, you know, it's not going to work out so well, and goes into hang out with, you know, the Trinity and have a good time at a party up there. He, like, comes into the depression that Abram's feeling. He walks right into it. He says, I want to come into your darkness. I want to be present in your darkness. He comes as a smoking fire pot, and the, and the word for smoke and cloud in Hebrew are the exact same word. Where did we see a pillar of smoke in the story? God, with the Israelites, was walking as a pillar of smoke to to cover them, to shield them from the heat of the sun, and all they could see is his feet. And again, here, actually this is before all that, Jesus comes, or the Messiah comes, and he's covered in a cloud, and he walks through the blood, through the sticky, nasty disgustingness of these animals. He comes into our darkness. Notice that it's not only a smoking fire pot, but also a flaming torch. He doesn't just come once, he comes twice. And what are the two symbols of God in the wilderness? Not only the cloud by day to shield them from the heat of the sun, but a fire at night to heat them in the cool of the day. In the desert, it gets into the hundreds uh, during the day, and it gets like sometimes freezing at night. It's, it's very intense in the desert. So do you see the awesome thing that God is saying to Abram? He's saying, I want to walk with you in your mess. I want to walk with you in your cancer. I want to be your friend. I want to put my feet in your hurt. I want to put my feet in your pain. I want to be family with you, which means I will walk with you both in the pain and the joys. And that's how we're going to get to know one another. That's how we're going to be close to one another. He says, I put my feet in the mess and the chaos of your world. He didn't have to. He's joining in the mess of our family and uniting his family with those who would believe in him for all eternity. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony. And now it's Abram's turn to walk through. He's the lesser party. It's his turn. 
Abram's overwhelmed with his sinfulness and weakness. And then God steps in his way and says, not only will I pass through once, but I will pass through a second time. And the torch in Isaiah 62.1 is the Messiah is called the torch. Essentially, the Messiah is coming and walking through the second time saying, even if you don't uphold your end of the covenant, I will be faithful. I will show you love. I will walk among the pieces for you. As a matter of fact, the promised seed from Abram's body refers not only to Isaac, but also to King Messiah. Abram should be walking. And and God is saying, your best effort, Abram, will never make it. I know that. That's why I'm walking among the pieces. I'm walking in your mess. I'm walking in the brokenness of your world because I know you will never be able to walk in this. The Messiah is the only one that can protect us and give us a reward in him. Every other God will promise you to care, they'll promise you to care for you, but your heart will be hardened and it, it will never, any other God will never follow through on its promise. God is the only God who follows through on his promises. You see, we deserve annihilation and separation because we all break the terms of the covenant. And regularly reject his has said love and say, hey, I've got a better, I got a better strategy here. I've got a better way of doing this. Jesus essentially showed us how to be vulnerable and to enter into one another's weaknesses, to enter into one another's mess. And he wants us as families. He wants us as covenant partners with him and with one another to enter into one another's mess. To say in the really exciting times, I want to know you in your power, God. And in the really tough times, I want to know you in your suffering because great intimacy comes in both beauty and in pain. I shared with you that Glory's dad had cancer and uh, nine months later we found out that it was was terminal, that he was not going to make it. And um, nine days later, he, he passed away. It was very quickly from, quick from when we found out it was terminal. And I remember being at around his bed and watching the family be torn to shreds. I remember at one point, um, one of Glory's brothers falling to the ground in utter agony and grief. And, and I, I was watching as the hearts of everyone in this family were being torn apart. And there was nothing I could do, nothing I could do. And I am here to tell you, I hate what sin does. I hate watching death. I hate when I am counseling couples to move away from divorce, to watch how it's ripping families apart, tearing them to shreds. And I, and I, and I so want them to grab onto God's has said love. As a matter of fact, a couple hours earlier, just before Bill was breathing his final breaths, someone was reading psalms to him. And as they're reading psalms to him, his arms are lifted to heaven. He can't talk at this point. He can't say anything. But he's reaching toward God saying, I want more of your chesed love. I want more of you. I'm coming to you soon. It's such a beautiful picture for the family. Such a beautiful picture. And as we were sitting around the bed, he was breathing his final breaths. 
there's one huge bolt of lightning and one clap of thunder. And then it began to just rain quietly. And it was as if God was saying, I hate this too. I want to weep with you too. Let my said love be with each of you. I've never felt God's presence so tangibly, so real as in those moments. And I've never hurt, I've seldom hurt so bad in my life and been in such pain in my life. God, I, don't know, I do not know why, all the answers of why God allows suffering. But I equally cannot explain to you, do not understand why God would come and enter our mess and he would be torn to shreds for us. Why would he do that? I, don't, I equally do not understand that. But I know that we have the one God who comes in and is torn to pieces for us. As a matter of fact, if we're good listeners here, we're asking the question, if these animals were torn apart, Part, who, who, who should be torn to pieces? If God is saying he will be torn to pieces, where is that? And we see at the cross, not only is his flesh torn in pieces, but I need you to understand something else. The Trinity was torn apart. The self-giving lovers, the family was actually divorced for a little while. Because of our sinfulness, we caused the Trinitarian family to be torn to pieces. The unheard of. This should never happen. There was a thick and dreadful darkness at that point too. God himself was torn to pieces. Listen to what Isaiah 53, 5 says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When many, many people, when we look at the Old Testament, we say that animal sacrifice is a way of that they were forgiving sin. But we know in Hebrews that animal sacrifice could never forgive sins. So why throughout all of Israel's history do they sacrifice the same five animals that Abram sacrificed in that one moment? The reason they sacrifice the same five animals throughout the whole story is they're saying, God, please keep your promise. We need you to walk between the pieces. We can't do it. It's impossible for us to walk between the pieces. God, would you keep your promise? They're looking ahead and saying, we need you to keep your promise. They're having faith in a God that they have not yet seen, but they know that he is going to keep his promise. And the faith that they have is credited as righteousness. So in the Torah, God instructs them, I want there to be a sacrifice twice a day in the temple. Once in the morning, once in the afternoon, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So every single day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., devout Jews throughout the city get quiet as the priest is at the altar slitting the throat of the lamb. And they're asking and praying, God, would you keep your promise? Would you walk among the pieces? Would you be torn apart? Because we can't do this. We need you. As a matter of fact, what's really fascinating is in Genesis 15, 8, when it says on that very day, it's not only referring to um, that day that this happened, but the final judgment day, some people believe. And in the Mishnah, it says that the same day Abram slaughtered the animals is the same day the Israelites put the blood on the doorpost. And that 
was the very same day, many years later, that Jesus fulfilled the covenant obligations by being torn to pieces and slaughtered so that we can be family, have new names, and new identities. As a matter of fact, Abram and Sarai, their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17. Because they're now part of a new family. It was really customary if they were a part of a new family and they had risen, especially uh, a, a much greater covenant partner raises your status significantly, you would have new names to signify that. Basically, what we have here is a new Adam and Eve. That God is raising this family and saying this family is going to be the redemptive family. So imagine with me 2,000 years after this covenant with Abram on the very day. It's a Friday. Jerusalem is full of people because of Passover and it approaches 3 p.m. But on this day, there's a man named Jesus hanging on the cross. Everyone is praying, God, keep your promise. And in a loud voice, Jesus says, it is finished. And he dies at exactly 3 p.m. His blood dripping in the same dust where his father Abram walked 2,000 years before. You see, God kept his promise and he's going to keep his promises. He's the only God that will keep his promise. He passed through the pieces for Abram in your place. He kept his promise just like he said he would. You see, all the stories outside of the gospel say you have to keep the promise. You have to prove. You have to perform. You have to prove that, that others will approve of you. That, that, that uh, your effort, your righteousness, you securing your own comfort, it's all on your shoulders. The gospel of Jesus is the only one that says it's on my shoulders. I'll do this for you. I'll sacrifice for you. In the gospel, God says, the work is finished and the only thing left to do is worship. I did it for you. I lived the blameless life. Perfect life that you could never live. The death you deserve to die. I am your shield. I am your reward. I love verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your very great reward. And then he shows him how it's going to work. We eventually see that Abraham does not does trust God as his protector and reward because he's willing to sacrifice his only son. He's saying, I'm looking to your said love. I trust you. Even though this is the son that is the son of promise, you're going to provide a way. I'm confident. He raises his, his knife to him. He's ready to kill him and sacrifice him. And God says, stop. I wanted to see how dedicated your heart is to me. And now I know you trust me. You trust me with your very life. And it was such a beautiful picture because in the very same place, 2,000 years later, the father was going to do just that with his son for you and for me. You see, in Isaiah 63, 3, it says, because your steadfast love is better than life itself, my lips will praise you. You and I are made to function in said love, in covenant Anything else does not work for us. Trust breaks down. We need this kind of covenant relationship. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is not just saying you're going to have a great reward. He's saying, I am your great reward. I am your shield. I want to walk with you. Something that's fascinating here is that 
with Abram, there was a great meal, likely. It was very common for covenants that there was a great meal. Fast forward in the story to the Passover. Huge meal celebrating the Passover of how God is the one that's going to deliver. How he upheld his promise in delivering them out of Egypt. Fast forward a little bit more to the Last Supper meal. Ironically, it was the food that we ate from the beginning, our appetite, where we grabbed food and we said, we can satisfy our appetite better than you, God. And God is saying, the very same thing that you took to try to satisfy your appetite, I'm going to show you is something that can redeem you. The meal that you can look at and say, this meal is a picture of, of God walking among the pieces, of God delivering us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What if every time we broke bread, what if every time we poured liquid, whether it's grape juice, wine, or something else, we proclaimed the Lord's death until he came? If it was a picture all the way back through the whole story of how God has been keeping his promise, he walked among the pieces, he delivered them from Egypt, He came and spilled his blood and fulfilled his promise. And there's a day coming where there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. And you and I are saying quietly, would you fulfill your promise? We long so much for God to fulfill his promise. And yet, right now, he's in the process of fulfilling his promise in your life and in mine. The word comfort in the Greek is the word parakalete or parakaleo. It means come alongside. He wants to walk with us. He's never promised to deliver us from the evil. He has promised eventually to deliver us from the evil, but he's never said that the trials he's necessarily going to deliver us from. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But he he has promised this. He's going to walk with us in it. And he wants to know us in it. And you don't have any hope, any hope outside of Jesus. So I want to encourage us at every meal. What if at every meal, instead of saying, thank you, God, for this food, and then diving into it, what if we said, God, I have this appetite right now that's so hungry for this food. But help me in these moments to realize that my appetite for this food will never be satisfied. As a matter of fact, the more I feed this appetite, the the larger it becomes. I want more food, and I want more food. And it's a continual lust for more if I just keep feeding my appetite. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His has said love is the only love that will satisfy your appetite. So I want to encourage us this week as we eat, as we have meals together, as we regularly eat, would you remember the whole story and remember God's promise how he's already fulfilled it. It's already and it's not yet. So part of it is God wants to, his his spirit in Ephesians 1 is the down payment of our inheritance. You actually can receive your inheritance this week by depending on Jesus. In your struggle, in your joy, he wants to be a covenant partner with you. He wants you to rejoice in him. And yet we anticipate that, that meal someday where we get to be with him. So would you this week begin the process 
of checking your appetite and saying, God, am I ultimately looking to you? Am I realizing that you're the one that's provided this food? You're the one that's promised these things. Every other false God in my life, every other way I seek comfort or control apart from you, it never satisfies. So I want to encourage us this morning to cry out to God and say, God, would you be my shield and my great reward? I'm going to give you a few minutes right now to just be quiet and listen to what it is that God is saying to you in this moment. And I want us to reflect and ask, God, what do you want me to hear? What do you, how do you want me to change as a result of what we've heard this morning? And so we're going to just have a few minutes before the band comes to just be quiet in God's presence.